0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, you are all good, all wise, all powerful, all just. You are the source of all joy, you're the happiest of all beings. Father, you are the glorious one. You are the one that our heart's affections should be set on. You are the one we should follow. You're the one we should adore. And yet, Lord, as we see you and who you are, we do confess that we've sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbor as ourself. And so we are truly sorry for our sin this morning, Lord. And as we repent of sin, we gladly receive your full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. According to your promise, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we pray, Lord, as those who are truly confessing and repenting of sin this morning, we thank you and receive that this morning. And we ask that you would now set our hearts right, even during this service right now, that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Father, make us people who love what you promise and delight in what you command. Lord, we don't want to just do things out of duty. We want to do them because we delight in you and we love the things you've commanded. And So we pray you're the only one that can do that and we pray you give us that heart this morning. We pray too for our missionaries, for Lorian and Holly as they're out on the field in and, and difficult and dangerous places, Lord. We pray that you'd protect them. Even more, Lord, we pray that you would make their work fruitful and that you'd give them joy in the gospel that continues to propel them forward and, and encourage them to keep doing that work. Lord, we pray come Have your way in our hearts, make us fully yours, we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people say, amen. Amen. So we're getting started here in a new series in Exodus, it's called Free to Follow, and if you turn to Exodus 1 and 2, and I do want to see you turn there, whether digitally or paper-wise, in Exodus 1 and 2, we're going to see that Pharaoh does these kind of repeated failed attempts to attack God's people, and the conclusion we're going to draw from that is that evil cannot stop the fulfillment of God's promise, amen? Amen. Evil cannot stop the fulfillment of God's promise. As it says in Isaiah 54, no weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. And that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see that God will fulfill his promises to his people in spite of evil and sometimes even through the attacks of evil. He's that powerful. And so it starts off in Exodus 1. We see that God is proving that he keeps his promises. And just to give you a little background, if you weren't here last week and you're kind of new to the Bible, is hundreds of years before the book of Exodus, about 2000 B.C., it's recorded in the book of Genesis, God called a man out of Ur named Abraham, and he made three promises to him. And the three promises were he was going to give him a multitude of descendants. He was going to give those descendants a land. And he promised that one of his descendants, one of Abraham's long, long, long descendants, would be the savior of the world. So he makes these promises to Abraham. And so Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt as a slave. He eventually, through some supernatural workings, ends up rising in power in the government right under Pharaoh. And he got that position because he successfully predicted that there would be a famine to come. There was going to be seven years. And so the Egypt was warned to store up grain for seven years for the seven-year-long famine, and he saved the nation. And so Joseph ends up this national hero in Egypt, and he's allowed then to bring in his family, all 70 of them, into Egypt. They're fed. They're kind of all treated well because of Joseph and his success in saving the nation and so exodus takes place centuries later and exodus guys is a continuation of the story of god's covenant promise to abraham so this is god's covenant promise to abraham continued and we actually in the hebrew the first verse in exodus is the word and it's kind of interesting you know you're told not to start sentences with and how about starting books with and it started with and to show that it's a continuation of God's promise to Abraham and you see in verse 1 his promise being fulfilled of the descendants take a look at it these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household Reuben Simeon Levi and Judah Issachar Zebulun Benjamin Dan Naphtali Gad and Asher all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons Joseph uh, was already in Egypt then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation, and the people of Israel were fruitful and increased, and they multiplied, and they grew strong, and the land was filled with them. Okay, that's what happened over the hundreds of years, is they went from 70 to a land filled with them. And so this is, this promise being, coming true, right? This, this promise that God made. So uh, the promise comes true, they're growing, but then the promise people, the people that promise get attacked. We see that in verse 8. Verse 8 reads this way. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemy and fight against us and escape from the land. And so Pharaoh's attacking God's people. And Pharaoh's attacking God's people, and he has his reasons. One of them is it says that that he didn't didn't know Joseph. It doesn't mean that he didn't know of Joseph, but he didn't acknowledge Joseph and what he'd done hundreds of years ago as kind of the salvation of that entire nation. He doesn't acknowledge that about Joseph. You know, that Joseph and God's people, the Jews, had had such a fundamental role in the preservation of Egypt, and he doesn't even take that into account. And I was just thinking I won't get into it real in depth, but that's kind of the cultural moment we're in right now, Right? as our culture seeks to remove the, the Christianity that it finds so you know, repugnant and repulsive, and not realizing that the Christian way of thinking and the Christian way of living is actually the foundation of Western culture. You know It's like Jenga, you don't wanna pull that piece out. Like that's, that's an important piece, right? But just like that, Pharaoh here, he doesn't kind of take that into account that Joseph had saved the nation. Pharaoh's also afraid. He's afraid of their numbers. That kind of xenophobia, that kind of fear of foreigners is common today. You hear it all over the world. People bemoan the influx of people that don't look like them and don't sound like them, and they fear those that they don't know. The xenophobia that's in here is specifically anti-Semitism. That's what we're seeing here. And it's a huge theme in history. I mean, you think about this, this kind of anti-Semitic attack that's happening here, this, this hatred and this demonizing of the Jews has been a theme throughout human history. I mean, no group has, has faced this kind of thing like they have. But there's something deeper here, guys. There's something deeper because Pharaoh here is actually, he's a part of a long line of men who have attempted to stamp out God's people. And if you go through the Old Testament, you'll see it over and over again. You see it like in the book of Esther. You see it you know, with the Babylonians. There's this struggle between God's people and this line of people that want to stamp it out. And it all started back in Genesis 3. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They sin against God. And then this ancient quarrel starts between Satan and God's people. You guys remember what god promised when he cursed satan in genesis three fifteen? he said i will put enmity between you satan and the woman between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel god promised that one day this seed or this descendant i'm saying seed like a plant seed this seed or this descendant would come and defeat satan for good It's a promise all the way back in Genesis 3. It's a promise, actually, that's repeated again to Abraham, right? Abraham's told that he's going to have a seed that's going to be a blessing to all nations. Same descendant. It's going down the the line here. Um, He said to Abraham, "...in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." And throughout Old Testament history and even into the New Testament, you see that as that promised Savior seed is going to come and and crush Satan and and do that, that the, the seed of Satan or those who are following the influence of Satan are constantly trying to stamp out that line. Because if you stamp out that line, you stamp out the Savior. So through his servant, Satan has been trying to stamp out the line that would give the world the promised seed of the woman who would defeat him. He's trying to destroy the line of the Messiah. And we see that throughout throughout biblical history. And so Pharaoh tries two lines of attack. Do you see them? There's two lines of attack here. The first one's enslavement. Look at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities at Pithom and Rahamses. And so they enslave them. And this is a technique that's been used throughout history. If you've got a group of people that you want to subjugate, you know, you enslave them. And the reason behind that is you want to make sure that they don't have the time or energy to rebel. Keep them beat down and keep them busy, keep them tired, and they're not going to rebel. And so he's got them on these building projects. Um, I think it's important to just say that there's nothing in the text that said they made the pyramids, okay? A lot of times people talk that way, Christians talk that way, that, oh, the Jews made the pyramids. You know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. It just said they were building. So it might not have been anything fancy and exciting that we can see today, but he put them to forced labor. But Pharaoh's plan doesn't work. Isn't this cool? What does verse 12 start with? What word? But, but the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The more Pharaoh afflicts them, the more God's promise comes true. Isn't that cool? I love it. And so there's phase two of the oppression thing. Look at verse 13. It says, and this doesn't sound like a new phase, but it is. Take a listen to it. So, this is how they respond. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, you can't necessarily see in the English except for the word ruthless, but this has gotten a lot more violent. There's indications here of violence in this text. So at first it's like, okay, we're going to slave you, make you work. Now we're just going to beat you up while you work. So that's what's going on here. But guys, notice, it also doesn't work. Because Pharaoh isn't just fighting God's people. Pharaoh's fighting God, right? There's an old play. I've never seen it, but it's from the early 20th century. And it's called, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. Okay? I think it'd be really important for all of us to right now acknowledge our arms are too short to box with God, and Pharaoh's are too. No evil can stop the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And so Pharaoh tries something more twisted. You see that in verse 15. His next phase is infanticide. Verse 15, I know this is dark. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew women, one of them whose name was Shafar. And one who is poor. When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall let her live. He's enlisting the midwives here to kill the Hebrew sons as soon as they're born. And this obviously is a very dark turn this is taking, reminiscent of the Holocaust or the Holocaust reminiscent of this. It's the same techniques, right? It's the same techniques of forced labor and killing people. It's the same spirit because Pharaoh here is a seed of the serpent. He is following the pathway of the serpent, trying to stamp out the line of God. But again, Pharaoh's plan does not work. What is the first word of verse 16? But. (laughs) Another but. He's like, ah! But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. And they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong because the midwives feared God, and he gave them families. It's a great line, isn't it, right? I mean, you know, the Hebrew women, they're just so strong. They just had their babies so fast. we like, get the call, we get there, it's done, baby's gone, we don't know what happened, right? This is very not believable. But these women... Um, being brave women, you know, these are brave women, just like those who resisted even during the Nazi Holocaust, you know, these midwives are risking themselves for these babies, and so Pharaoh switches to phase two of plan two, which is in verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so he starts with the midwives, now he's saying, hey, everybody's got a hunting license, okay, all of you have got a tag, go for it. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast it in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so this command goes out to all of his people. This is super scary, right? Because there's going to be a lot of resentments among the Egyptians of these people that are growing in their land and stuff. It's very easy for him to just say, hey, anyone that wants to throw a a, a male... Um, Hebrew baby in the river, go for it. And he's turning this river into an instrument of genocide. And guys, this doesn't work either. And and the way that I know that is that when you read later in the story, Pharaoh has lots of male contemporaries, okay? So this didn't work either. It's not like they were even able to wipe out all the men of his generation, guys, because no evil can stop the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And not only that, when we go to to chapter 2, we can find that not only will evil not stop God's promise from being fulfilled, But God can even use evil against itself. That's the amazing thing. And you'll see that in chapter 2. And I'll read that. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a, a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed him among the reeds of the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw that basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it, and when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, he was crying, and she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister, this is Moses' sister, saw that Pharaoh's daughter and said, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the child went and called her mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew strong, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, And he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I've drawn him out of the water. Now, this is an amazing story, but what's interesting about this story is there's nothing overtly supernatural here. There's nothing overtly supernatural here. There's two two Levites, and they marry. That's pretty normal. They have a son. That's normal. They don't want to kill him. That's normal, just so you know. The mom makes this waterproof basket and sets him in the reeds at the bank of the Nile where women go to bathe. That's actually a pretty normal strategy, too. When I was a kid, or even until recently, I was confessing to my wife, I don't know where I got this. Was this a movie or something? Where he's in the basket, and he's kind of led adrift, and he goes down the river, and like some crocodiles try to eat him, but he gets away. Is this a cartoon? And you know, goes over a little waterfall, and he's kind of going down the way, and then he just happens to land right where... But that's not what happened here. So what happened here is you can see he's placed in the reeds at the bank. So he's not taking a little, like, ride down the rapids. None of that happened, okay? He's put in a little little boat here, and he's put right in the reeds where she knows women come down to bathe. So think about this. If you, you know, your kid's starting to cry, he's three months old, you're, I can't hide him anymore, and you've got to do something, where else are you going to hide him? This is a perfect spot. You're not going to put him in the desert, Right? And drop them off anywhere else. This is a perfect place to put them where women come down to bathe, right? This is kind of like, here's a baby. Can someone take this baby, right? And so Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe and finds him, has compassion on him, adopts him. And then the sister, who's kind of scouting out, she sees this. She goes, Oh, do you need somebody to nurse that baby? I know somebody that can. And it's Moses' own mom, which is impressive, but it's not overtly supernatural. If you heard that story back then, you might say, You know, they're telling the story. And you're like, No way. You're so lucky. Right? That would be the response. Wow, how lucky. That's, that's amazing. But you wouldn't say, wow, a miracle. You'd say, wow, so lucky. And it was lucky if you mean luck in the sovereignly ordained sense. Right? In the sense of Proverbs 16, the lot cast in the, is cast in the lap and every decision's from the Lord. Is God rules over even things that are seemingly random or lucky. Right? And even though there's nothing overtly supernatural here, guys, God's fingerprints are all over this. Okay, we can all read this like the book of Esther and go like, all right, I know who did this, right? And we can know it from the description of the basket. Do you see that in verse 3? It says the basket was waterproofed with pitch. Can you think of another place in the Old Testament where pitch is used for waterproofing? Where? Yeah, Noah's Ark, exactly. And that's the only other time that this kind of description is made. And that word for basket is the same Hebrew word as the word for ark, and it's the only other time it's used in the Old Testament. And so I think what the author intends us to find this, and I think what this is, is God going like, "Yeah, I did that," right? He's going, "Yeah, I did that." God is again using an ark, a miniature one, to rescue His people, like in the days of Noah when evil wanted to stamp out the line of the Messiah. Then, God is preserving His people. Isn't that awesome? Isn't amazing? This is an amazing example of God's creative sovereignty. You think of God like that? He's a creative sovereignty. He writes history. He didn't just have the scriptures written. He wrote the history that the scriptures are describing. He has a creative sovereignty. The theological term for this is providence. You guys ever use the term providence? God's providence? It's an important term to have in your head and in your mind and in your mouth. Um, It's a great option to lucky (laughs) or random or just like, wasn't that cool? It was providential, right? Um, The Heidelberg Catechism, I have a slide of it here. Albert Catechism, question number 27, says this, What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with a hand, he upholds the heavens and the earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Amen? God's providence. He is with great wisdom and goodness and even creativity. He is guiding all the events of history, all the things in our life. Everything that happens is through his providential hands. And in this story, he puts some really cool irony in his providence. There's providential irony here. I love, this is one of the ironies I love. I love in chapter one, Pharaoh goes to his assistants, come, let's deal shrewdly with them. And you can imagine his assistants going, let's Then he comes up with this plan, and then he's like promptly outwitted by five ladies, right? These five women, these courageous women, outwit him. He's the most powerful man in the world. He's outwitted, like instantly. I love the the irony of the fact that that what God did with the Nile, because Pharaoh chose the Nile as his instrument of death, and then God says, no, 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 I'm going to use that instrument of death, I'm going to use it as an instrument to give my people life. He turns an instrument of death into an instrument of life. Um, I love how God uses Pharaoh's own power against him, right? It's so cool when you watch this because Pharaoh ends up paying to raise the very one that's one day going to defeat him. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing creative providence right there, right? Pharaoh's funds go to pay for Moses to be nursed by his own mother. So Moses' mother gets her baby back and is paid to raise him, okay? This is amazing. This is Pharaoh's money going to raise the one who will one day destroy him. Pharaoh then pays all for Moses to receive all the food and luxuries and education that Egyptian royalty can expect. He's being duped into all this by his own daughter. Pharaoh's own resources are being raised for the person that's going to take him down. All of his efforts to destroy the promise, he actually goes to fulfill it. Guys, because no evil can stop the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. Like, evil, when it tries, only evil ends up working for it, right? Right? And I think the Lord's like, hey, Pharaoh, I can do this all day. Hit me again, you know? Try again. I can do this all day, you know? Um, Pharaoh's like, oh, come, let us deal shrewdly. And Psalm 2 says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. And we should too, by the way. Guys, God's got this. No evil can stop him. Uh, The Jews have always looked back on this story of the Exodus as a way to remind themselves of God's power, of his sovereignty, of his faithfulness, of the way that he can shame the wise and he can outpower anyone. But we, guys, we have a greater example of this in Jesus Christ, don't we? All those things we see in a greater way in Jesus Christ. Jesus being the true seed of the woman who's come to defeat Satan and sin and death. Jesus has come to crush the head of the serpent, just as God promised. And there's some really fine similarities here between um, Moses and this story and Jesus Christ. So Jesus, like Moses, came from humble beginnings in an oppressed nation, right? So um, the the Jews being oppressed by Egypt in Moses' time, uh, the Jews being oppressed by the Romans in Jesus' time. Jesus, like Moses, was an infant hunted by an evil king. The similarities are too strong there to miss, right? Right? You guys remember Herod's response when he heard about Jesus' birth? He wanted to stamp him out. He wanted to kill him, right? Because Herod was the kind of seed of the serpent in his own day, and he sees this rival king, and Herod wants to exterminate him. What does he do? He tries to wipe out all of the babies in Bethlehem that are two years old and under. And then where does the family flee to? They find safety in Egypt, just like Moses did. It's amazing, right? Just like in Exodus at the cross, God uses the power of evil against itself. You guys know how judo works? Neither did I. So I have a friend that does it, and I was talking about it. And one of the principles, you always hear, like, judo is this martial art form that you use your, your opponent's uh, strength against them, right? And so I called them, I'm like, hey, is this true? And he said, yeah, he said in the standing form of judo, when you're not the grappling, when you're standing, you use your opponent's momentum against them. So if they're lunging at you, you're going to find a way to use that momentum against them. So you're using your opponent's power against them. Guys, the cross was the ultimate judo move. God used his opponent's power against him. All the forces of evil are against Jesus at the cross to destroy him. And what does God do? He uses all their power against him to defeat them. Listen to Peter in Acts 2.23. He says this about the cross. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, these unbelieving Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what was it? Was the cross God's plan? Or was the cross the plan of lawless men? Answer, yes, right? Or again, in Acts 4.27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Same question, which is it? Was the cross Herod and Pilate's rebellion against God's anointed? Or was the cross God's hand and plan doing whatever he predestined to do? Answer, Yes. Isn't that amazing? What they meant for evil, God meant for good. The best kind of good. It's amazing when you think about it, guys. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin by being sinned against. The cross is the worst sin in history. You can't have a worse sin than killing God the Son. Right? There's not a worse sin than that. And yet, at that worst sin in history, all of your sins, if you trust in Jesus, were wiped away. That's a pretty cool move. That's amazing. That's amazing to use the biggest sin in history as God's means for which to have all of our sins wiped away. Or think about how Jesus defeated death by dying. You know, like in Exodus 2, Jesus turned the enemy's chosen instrument of death, the cross, into an instrument that would give us all life. Didn't see that coming. That's impressive, right? That's impressive. You know, how about this? Jesus defeated the serpent by taking his bite, right? Jesus defeated Satan by letting him crucify him. You see that in Genesis 3.15, right? That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But that the seed of the woman would take this bite and the heel, but then he would crush the head of the serpent. On the cross, Jesus got what turned out to be a heel wound, and Satan got a fatal head wound. Colossians 2.14 says this about the cross, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Do you think about the cross that way? You think about that as Jesus' triumph over sin and Satan and death? It was. No evil can stop God's promise from being fulfilled to you, guys. The greatest evil in history, the killing of the Son of God on the cross, was actually used to bring you blessing. If God can do that, and he can, and he did, then God can turn any evil that stands against you for your good. He's proved he can do it, right? Like, that's pretty solid, right? So if there's something that you feel attacked by today, you can know that God knows how to turn things that you see as evil in your life for your good. Do you feel under attack today? Do you feel under attack in your health? Do you feel under attack in your finances or your career? Do you feel under attack in your relationships? Do you want to answer D, all the above? Okay. Some of those are dangerous questions to answer. The third one is, yeah, I feel attacked in my relationship. And your spouse is like, wait, what? (laughs) Yes, you. (laughs) Guys, if you feel attacked in those ways, you need courage. You know what courage is? Courage is confidence in God's promises. Right? We need courage. When we face stuff like that, we need courage. The the Israelites, they needed courage. We need courage. I need courage every time I wake up in the morning. (laughs) I need courage. And the first thing that happens often, wake up, sense of dread, try to name it, give it a name. This dread must be this, this, or this. And it's like, no, the dread came first. We need courage. What's courage? Courage is confidence in God's promises, right? We need that. Has God made promises to you? Yes. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus, God has made certain promises to you. I think this is kind of vague because some of us have claimed promises that aren't promises, you know, like that he's going to. You know, make our wildest dreams come true and make us successful and we'll never get sick. And none of those promises are made to you. Let me give you the ones you actually have. They're better. He's promised you this. In Christ, God has promised you, if you're in Jesus, if you're trusting in him, that he will never leave you or forsake you. That he will turn every attack against you for your good. He's promised to make you more and more like Christ. He's promised to resurrect you from the dead and complete that work. He's promised to make you one day Ridiculously happy forever in the world to come. And I know that doesn't land on us as strongly as it should, because sometimes you'll bring that up and people go, Oh, that? I kind of wanted, you know, the promotion. I'm like, Okay, wait. Let's... He's promised to make you ridiculously happy forever in the world to come in a resurrected body in the presence of His, his, his own glory, to see Him and know Him. Your best day here isn't like that, not even close. These are some of God's promises to you personally. Um, Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, he preached his first sermon when he was 18. And the thesis of his sermon was great. So the thesis is this. Christians should be happy. Here are his points. Christians should be happy. Our bad things will turn out for good. Point number two. Our good things can never be taken away from us. Point number three. The best things are yet to come. You like that? Those are all, you can back all those up with Scripture, okay? Christians should be happy. Our bad things will be turned to good. You can think of a bunch of verses on that. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come. Guys, no evil can stand against God's fulfilling of his promises to you. What's the enemy going to do? Afflict us with hard labor? We multiply. Kill us? We resurrect. Guys, Satan is inept at destroying God's promise, He's as inept as Pharaoh. Now, he's powerful, and if you stray from the Lord, there's all kinds of trouble you can get yourself into. But for those who are trusting in Christ, repentant, guys, he's inept. God has these problems. Those promises I listed to you cannot be taken away by him. Our God reigns. Psalm 2 says, he sits in the heavens and laughs. We should do a lot more laughing right? If our God sits in the heavens and laughs, what does that tell us? He's got this. Like, people don't laugh when they don't have this. Um, I remember Spurgeon talking about, I don't remember Spurgeon, but I remember a sermon of his. (laughs) I'm not that old. I remember Spurgeon talking in a sermon about how being on a ship and there's some rough water and stuff, but he could hear the captain of the ship whistling, and he thought, things must be fine, right? Right? Guys, we know our God is laughing. We know he's whistling. We know from Zephaniah he's singing. We should be laughing and singing too, right? Guys, there, let me give it to you this way. There is no Christian discipline of hand-wringing, okay? You can't tell from us. You can't tell from Christian media. You can't tell from the way we talk to each other. There's no Christian discipline of hand-wringing. You've never been given the role of hand-wringing and worrying about whether God is going to, you know, what's going to happen? Oh, Christianity's dying and all these things. It's like there is no Christian discipline of hand-wringing. Guys, we win, right? We win. We know we win. We read the end of the book. We win. And nothing can stop that. You know that, right? Sometimes I can't tell by looking at you, okay? We win keep that in mind. Let me read you one thing in closing and it's a big chunk of Romans 8 because it's exactly about this. And turn there. Romans 8:28. Take a look. You need this. I need this. We win. Okay? Our God sits in the heavens laughing. He's singing, he's whistling. The ship is fine. Okay. Romans 8:28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. That's you if you're trusting in Jesus. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That sounds awesome. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is what they call the golden chain. There's no lost people in the middle of this, right? So if you're predestined and called and you're currently justified, trusting in Jesus, you will be glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. And we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. 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 No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your beautiful word to us this morning. Lord, we know that if we seek refuge in you, we have nothing to fear. If we don't seek refuge in you, we have you to fear. And so we pray, Lord, that we would all be seeking our refuge in you, that we would draw near to you, that we would not stray from you, but we would hide ourselves in you and feel the security that you're immovable, unshakable, victorious. Lord, help us to draw near, to abide in you, to enjoy that security. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Lord's Supper, God illustrates his covenant promises, the ones that I read to you today. And it shows us how Jesus secured all of that through his broken body and his shed blood. That's what the The elements represent here. In the Lord's Supper, God feeds and strengthens us. We need courage. We need strength. He does that through the preaching of the word. He does that through this as well. He feeds and strengthens us. I love Psalm 23. It says this, not specifically about the Lord's Supper, but it fits great. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what this is. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If Jesus is your only hope to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, then this is for you. If you're currently repenting of sin, this is for you. And I would invite you to take this and feed your soul at the table. And it's cool because I love Psalm 2. This is a table in the presence of your enemies. Because, guys, none of your problems went away, right? He's feeding you not in a place where your problems have all been removed and everything's good. He feeds you in the presence of your enemies. But what's cool about that is even though your worldly concerns are not gone, you now have courage to face them because you know how the story ends, right? Amen? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.